Hey everyone, today's Bible reading will be from Revelation 2, and that'll be verses 1 to 11, and then 18 to 28. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is, vict the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And then verse 18 to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations." that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. This is the word of the Lord. Cyrus. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, let's pray as we come to God's word. And my prayer is taken from... Uh, passage we looked at last week, uh, Revelation 1. Father, thank you that uh, you bless us when we read aloud the words of this prophecy. 
You bless us when we hear. You bless us when we keep what is written in it, for the time is near. We ask, Father, that you would give us ears to hear and help us to keep these words. In Jesus' name. Amen. Did you get that, Daniel? Back in the 1990s, Julie and I lived in Lismore. Uh, we were doing student work uh, up there at Southern Cross University. Part of our job was to visit different churches and to talk about our work uh, to raise the profile of the ministry. Now, a lot of country towns like Lismore, um, the spiritual landscape is quite different to, to Sydney. Um, churches with good Bible teaching were actually quite hard to come by. Uh, our visit to one particular church was fairly typical. Uh, this church shall remain nameless. It will be referred to simply as Church X. Uh, it was an evening youth service and there was a young lad who I don't think was a regular preacher giving the sermon. You need to understand a bit of background here uh, to, to know my story. Uh, at the time, there was a pretty well-known revival happening in America that started at, in a place called Pensacola in Florida. Uh, this lad was very enthusiastic about what God was doing through the revival, and that was the topic of the sermon. In fact, that was all he talked about. Uh, I'm pretty sure he didn't actually open the Bible at any point. The only thing I remember from the sermon was him holding up a can of Pepsi and instead of Pepsi-Cola written on the can was Pensacola. Uh, well, I'm afraid that was all too much for me. Uh, I tell the story not to rubbish this young lad or, or his church, but to point to my response to it, which wasn't good. Um, I, I restrained myself from storming out of the church, um, but on the inside my response was pretty judgmental. And I found myself feeling pretty self-righteous and uppity that I thought I knew better than this bloke and my church was better than Church X because uh, we preached the Bible. It's a very human response, isn't it, to when we think we're doing something right to be judgmental of those that we think are not, uh, to be unloving, judgmental, to write them off. And that's one of the issues that Jesus is addressing here in Revelation 2. That was the problem for the church of Ephesus. And then we'll see that the church in Thyatira had almost the opposite problem. They were loving, but they tolerated people in behaviour that they should have condemned. Two opposite symptoms of what is really the same problem, and that is that good works are good, but it's the heart that matters to God. And if the heart's not right, then no amount of effort or good works are going to cover up a lack of love or idolatry. Uh, as you no doubt know, there are seven different letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation. Uh, we were introduced to them last week in chapter 1, uh, where the seven churches were named. Um, here's a map of um, the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, it's in modern-day Turkey, and as you can see, they're clustered together in a reasonably small geographical area. They're real places, uh, 
Pretty much none of them exist anymore except for Smyrna, which is now the modern city of Izmir. Uh, but the rest are all in ruins. But they were real places uh, at the time of writing. Real churches in real places. Today, we're just looking at three of those churches um, in chapter 2, the ones that we had read out to us. Just a word about how the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches tie in to the rest of the book of Revelation. At first glance, it seems like chapters 2 and 3 are quite different to the rest of the book and don't really seem to tie together. Uh, they are very specific, are grounded in a particular place at a particular time. And then the rest of the book is a bit like a plane taking off. You suddenly leave the ge these geographical places to suddenly you're off the ground and given a cosmic view of the universe, a cosmic view of the heavens and the earth and what God is doing on this cosmic level. But then if you read the book carefully, particularly how chapter 1 flows into chapters 2 and 3, we see that the whole book is actually one big letter. And the recipients are the seven churches, not just for chapters 2 and 3, but for the whole book. So the message to the individual churches continues on after chapter 3. And as we go along, we'll see that this affects the way that we read the whole book. So, for example, we often think of the book of Revelation as a message of hope and comfort for a persecuted church. It certainly is that. But it's also addressed to churches who have lost their first love, like one of the churches that we hear of today. Churches who are rich and arrogant. For them, Revelation is as much a rebuke and a warning of judgment as it is a comfort. So we'll unpack these different applications as we go along. But for today, we're going to hone in on chapter 2 and look at three churches in Ephesus, Smyrna and Thyatira. And they will be my three points. So let's dive into uh, chapter 2. So... The first church that we look at is Ephesus, who were characterised by working hard, but something was missing, which was their heart for God. Well, the letter starts off in chapter 1. Uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. For those of you who were here last week, you will remember those images from chapter 1. Uh, the seven stars and the golden lampstands. It's a picture of Jesus holding the seven churches in his right hand and dwelling among the churches. So he wants to remind the church here at Ephesus that he is present with them. And their purpose is to reflect God's light to the world. And then the words written to each of these churches are the words of Jesus. This is his message to them. He starts off positively enough to Ephesus in, chapter, in verse 2. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. The Ephesian church had done particularly well at ferreting out heresy, bad teaching, not giving a hearing to, to false prophets. 
We know from history from a letter that's been discovered written by a bishop called Ignatius around the time that the church had a reputation for solid teaching. And that was absolutely crucial for them to do. We know from Paul's letters to, uh, in, in 1 and 2 Corinthians how much damage false apostles, apostles can do in a church. It was a time when the church was just getting established. Most of the church were from a Gentile background. Their Bible knowledge may not have been that great. And so they were susceptible to dodgy teaching and heresy. In verse 6, Jesus commends the Ephesians for, having, for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. False teaching breeds bad behaviour. So that stuff matters to God. What the Ephesian church had been doing was good and necessary. Now I'm thankful to God that Sweck is a church where the Bible is taught and valued. And I really appreciate the fact that when we preach up front, uh, I know that what we say is being tested by you. That you are reading the Bibles and you're checking against the Bibles whether, whether or not what I say from up front is rubbish or not, or whether it is in fact God, from God's word. Let me say that those things, you sh we should not take those things for granted. Working overseas, I saw that churches that taught the Bible were often the exception rather than the norm. Good teaching, a determination to root out heresy and error are crucial for every church. But there's also a danger that comes with being good at guarding the truth. And that is the danger that the Ephesians had fallen into. Have a look at verse 4. Yet I hold this against you, says Jesus. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. When Christians are focused on guarding the truth and sniffing out dodgy teaching and error, it's very easy to have a kind of siege mentality. That the world's out to get you. That it's easy to be suspicious of others on the outside. People from a particular denomination or church um, that has this or that reputation. And I know that I've been guilty of that myself at times. And friends, when we like that, it's hard to be loving, isn't it? It's hard to love others who you're constantly suspicious of. And it's hard to love God too, because we can become proud. Proud that coming from Sydney, we can dot our theological I's and cross our T's. We can easily come to trust in our Bible knowledge or our theological position, rather than trusting God. Now, from my observation, I don't think we are particularly bad here at Sweat. So that's a good thing. But still, as Western wealthy Christians who are well-educated and come from a background of good Bible teaching, there is always a danger of trusting in our ability to understand the Bible and even to lean on our good works as a badge of pride. There's a danger of losing our love for God as we subtly think, that we can do quite nicely in the Christian lives ourselves. But hear the warning that Jesus gives, verse 5. 
Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, I don't think that Jesus here is talking about them losing their salvation. I don't think that's the issue. I think it's a warning that they'll lose their witness. That they could become ineffective and stop being a light to the world. Remember the lampstand was a symbol of, of, of them being a light, shining God's light to the world. Wouldn't it be a tragedy, friends, if we got so caught up in our right theology and so full of ourselves that we stopped being a witness for Jesus? Right theology is good. Good works are good, but it's the heart. Love for God and others that matters to God. Second church that we'll look at, we're going to jump down to the third church we had read, which is Thyatira. And their problem was that they were zealous for God, but not jealous for God. Here Jesus is described in words very similar um, to chapter 1 in the introduction. Pick it up from verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. The Son of Man sees exactly what the church is like with eyes that pierce like blazing fire and he has bronze feet symbolising power and strength to conquer and trample his enemies. Once again, things start out pretty well for Thyatira. Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing now more than you did at first. Unlike the Ephesians, this church is doing well at loving. They've been faithful in their service, and what's more, they're doing better than they did at first. All good signs. But then comes the catch. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Uh, you may uh, be familiar with that name from the Old Testament, Jezebel, who was the notorious wife of King Ahab. More than almost any figure in Israel's history, Jezebel heaped sin upon sin by uh, uh, with, um, engaging in idolatry, murder, persecuting God's prophets and generally late making life miserable for anyone who was serious about following God. It seems unlikely this woman was actually called Jezebel. It would be a bit like naming your child Adolf today, um, but it's symbolic. Um, what we can learn, we can learn quite a lot about Jezebel, what Jezebel probably did by knowing a bit of the background of Thyatira. I've lost my notes. They've disappeared. Where were we up to? Um, verse 20, yep, yep, okay. So we read verse 20. Jezebel, the name Jezebel uh, is symbolic for someone who, um, who is leading the congregation into sin. We can learn quite a lot about what Jezebel probably did by knowing a bit of the background of Thyatira. Uh, it, it was a city that had become prosperous through its manufacturing industry. Uh, it produced things like cloth, linen, metalwork. Uh, a large number of traders sprang up um, from the city, in the city. 
and they formed around organisations called trade guilds. To do business in that city, it was pretty much essential to be part of a trade guild. And central to the life of these guilds was participating in religious feasts and rituals. To be part of of a guild meant you pretty much had to be part of doing that. Knowing the back, that background makes sense of what Jesus says about Jezebel in this letter. Um, so have a look again at verse uh, 20. She misleads people into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Uh, that was exactly the, the thing that the people in these guilds were doing. Now we might read that and think, how can a committed Christian possibly get involved with that? But these are new Christians in a Greek culture and for them those things wouldn't have sounded shocking because everyone pretty much in that culture ate food sacrificed to idols. It was just part of what you did. You bought food from the meat market and it was all sacrificed to idols. And sleeping with a temple prostitute, sexual immorality, they weren't seen as being immoral. That was just part of religious life. Everyone did it. In fact, it was the Christians who were seen to be acting in ways that were considered unacceptable by not participating in the public life of the city. So for the people following Jezebel, it was likely they participated in those things without really questioning it. Their motive was probably not to be immoral because they really wanted to sleep around or they really wanted to worship those idols, their motive was very probably economic security. Because if they wanted to keep their job, they were expected to do these things. Is economic security a bad thing? Putting on the t- food on the table for your family? Now, I found it hard to think of an equivalent issue in our culture, but think of something so central to our lives, so central to our values, that we don't even question it. And it's related to this issue of economic security, making money. Because I think the idea of getting ahead financially, providing for the future, especially if we have a family, the driving goal of our governments is economic growth. Not just to be content with how much we have, but to keep getting more and more. Almost no one questions the goal of us as individuals to make money. I don't mean just to have enough to live on, but to make more than we need so that we have the things we want. I want to suggest that perhaps money has become an idol to us as Christians too. And we're just so immersed in a culture that worships money that we can't see our idolatry as well. When Julie and I were in Melbourne doing cross-cultural training with CMS before we went to East Asia, one of our teachers uh, used to be a missionary in Kenya. Uh, And he tells a story about a friend, uh, a Kenyan Christian, who came to Australia to visit. One day, uh, this Kenyan went into a shopping mall in Melbourne uh, and he says he couldn't stay more than a few minutes because of the spiritual oppressiveness he felt from the materialism. Now, as I heard that story, I felt rebuked 
and struck by, struck by how different my response is when I go to Westfield. Because materialism is so normal to me. I don't even question it. I wonder what Jesus wants to say to us about our idolatry. Do we make money something more than God intends it to be for the sake of having economic security and getting ahead? Well, bringing it back to the church at Thyatira, the problem wasn't just the sin of Jezebel and those who followed her, it was that the church tolerated it as, uh, as well. Even though this idolatry and immorality were part of Greek culture, the church knew very clearly that it wasn't acceptable Christian behaviour. Paul, in his letters to the Corinthians, which um, predated Revelation by perhaps 30 or 40 years, um, Paul very clearly calls out that kind of behaviour in his letters. Every church, even a young church, would have known that becoming a Christian meant drawing a line in the sand and turning away from idolatry, sexual immorality. Sadly, in the church today, we often see those who emphasise love and including everyone as part of God's family. Things, by the way, that are absolutely essential for any church. I'm not saying that they're not important. But often churches that emphasise these things also goes soft on judgment, judgment of sin and discipline. And I think it can be a temptation for us as well. Out of a right desire to be tolerant and loving everyone, no matter what their background or past behaviour, we can easily slip into the opposite error of the church of Ephesus. And we might look at the ugliness of churches who are judgmental and suspicious of everyone, who are different to them and acts like a theological policeman and say, no, we don't want to be like that, but go to the other extreme of turning a blind eye to sin. Well, Jesus goes on in the letter to say that Jezebel and her followers will be punished. But happily, there are those in the church who have not followed her or tolerated her behaviour. They are told to hold fast to what they have until the end. Keep being faithful. And then in verse 26, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. These are things we saw introduced in chapter 1, if you remember. God's people will have authority over the nations. Because Jesus will rule and judge us as the king with a sword in his mouth. This is an encouragement and a warning. This is the prize that awaits every believer who keeps trusting in their king. But this is also a king who rules with a sword. He won't be mocked. He won't be trifled with. So the overall message to the church of Thyatira... Good works are good, but it's the heart that matters to God. Having love but tolerating idolatry and not caring about sin will not end well. Well, finally, our third church, and we've saved the best to last, the church of Smyrna was a poor church, but one that is rich. 
It's a church that Jesus has only praise for, unlike the other churches. There's no word of rebuke. In the introduction, we're told that these are the words of the first and last who died and came to life, reminding the church that he has conquered death. And these are words that this church needs to hear because for them, suffering, severe persecution and even death is a real possibility. Pick it up in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and will... Uh, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. The problem the church of Smyrna was was, uh, facing was persecution from the Jews. Jesus calls them those that say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan in verse 9. They were Jews by blood, but by their actions, they showed that they weren't true Jews. They weren't truly God's people. What happened in Smyrna was that the Jews would blow the whistle to the Romans that there were Christians here who refused to bow down to the emperor, who refused to participate in these pagan rituals, uh, idolatry, worship of the pagan gods. Part of the propaganda of the Roman Empire was to claim that Caesar was a god and the people were expected to bow down and make sacrifices to him. Well, the result of this persecution was that from a physical point of view, things weren't going to end well for many of these believers. Some of them would be killed for their faith. And yet Jesus says, don't be afraid. Now, if their hope was only in this life, surely there was every reason to be afraid. But Jesus wants to assure them that it's the unseen reality that's greater than this life that really counts. The one who has conquered death promises that they will gain the victor's crown. The ESV translates it as the crown of life. Because Jesus has conquered death All who believe in him will share in his victory and wear the crown of life. The church in Smyrna was suffering and yet they would conquer. Ultimately, the might of Rome wouldn't have the victory, but this small, struggling church would be the ones that would win in the end. And it was a church, it was also a church that was economically poor as well. Have a look at verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. They are spiritually rich, says Jesus. They are rich in the knowledge of God's love and his grace and his ability to strengthen them and sustain them in their physical weakness. Well, to finish off, a couple of reflections trying to tie together the message of these three churches. Two out of the three of them were doing some things right. The church in Ephesus and Thyatira were in many ways working hard for God, but in both cases there was a major issue, an Achilles heel, that threatened to derail them. Both of the churches were in different ways what we might call well-resourced. Ephesus knew their stuff about God. 
They had a bunch of well-trained people who had been through more college and SMBC. They knew one end of the Bible from the other. Lots of good things happening in this church. Good works are good, but the problem was their heart wasn't right. They'd become proud and lost their first love. Then the church in Thyatira was economically well-resourced. Its people benefited from the thriving trade in their city, but their wealth caused them to compromise morally. The one church out of the three that wasn't well-resourced was the one, one church that was doing well. And I don't think that was a coincidence. In God's economy, it's the poor who are blessed and the rich who are warned. That's because having lots of resources brings particular dangers and temptations to trust in what we have rather than in God. Now, I'm not suggesting that we go and give everything away that we have, uh, although God may be challenging you to live with less. But we need to know that being wealthy, and, and not, not just with, with money, but with knowledge, education, having all the advantages of living in a wealthy country, having all those things makes it more difficult for us to have our hearts right with God. It's great to do good works. There are loads of good things happening at SWEC that I think we do, uh, and that, that things that we're doing well at, but it's important to have a heart checkup as well. The one who walks among the lampstands knows us. His eyes of, of blazing fire are upon us. Friends, let's put our trust in the one who is first and last, the one who died and came to life again. Amen.